Good evening, Calvary Chapel Old Town. Well, welcome. Uh, let's see if I can make my mouth work. Uh, welcome tonight. We're glad you're here with us. Uh, glad you're here to celebrate and worship our Lord. You know, we had that video up earlier of the guy dancing, and um, I know that's a funny video, but I uh, that video really reminds me of a pastor in Taiwan. Uh, his name was Pastor Fan, and he was in a little village uh, or a little town of Ame. And uh, when we went there and were working with him, uh, one of the things he had going on was a seniors uh, program where he'd get all the seniors together and they would do exercises in the morning. But the way they would do the exercises is he was teaching them Bible stories as they'd go through the whole Bible. So when I see that video of the guy dancing and like clearing out the temple and sowing the seed and everything, I just think of Pastor Fawn and uh, his, his really uh, neat ministry that he had going with all those elderly folks. And um, the, 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 probably the worst part about that day of doing the, the ministry with him was the food they served us at the end. It was noodles with a whole bunch of fish eyeballs. So that was strange. And, and all the kids were like grossing out about it. So they kept giving it to me and I kept eating them. So <laughs> anyway. But uh, a couple announcements uh, here we have tonight. Uh, the first one is uh, if you're interested in... Um, giving your offering. Uh, we don't pass a plate on Sunday nights. Uh, we have giving boxes at the door, uh, right in the back of the center aisle and then right here. And uh, you can just fill out an envelope, drop it in that box, and uh, it, it'll be collected at the end of the service and then put into the general offering. Uh, also, you can give digitally uh, through going on to calvaryot.com slash hashtag slash giving, because we couldn't make it just slash giving. Uh, Sorry, that was it's my fault, by the way. Uh, and so, uh, and you can set up a digital giving if you want to do it that way, or you can even text and and do giving that way. So, um, if you're interested in worshiping God that in, in through your tithes and your offerings, that's how you can do it on Sunday nights. And then, uh, of course, we have the Harvest Crusade coming up. And last week we challenged you, and I'm going to continue challenging you. Pick up one of these bookmarks in the back of the church, and then write some of your unsaved friends or family on this bookmark and start praying for them now. You know, when we were in Nepal and you all were praying for me, I, I've come back and everybody's telling me, man, we were praying for you. And, I, and the thing was is I knew it while we were there in Nepal. But we would just start to think about something that we needed. And we, we'd, we'd, I'd send out a text or send out a message here back home and ask, pray for this. And then it would show up. It was like, What? <laughs> So, I mean, every time we ask for prayer, it happened. And please pray for your unsaved friends and family and uh, invite them to the Harvest Crusade. Uh, this is really important to our church. And I'll tell you right now, new believers are the lifeblood of the church. So let's, let's try, to, try to really use this opportunity of being a part of the Harvest Crusade and bring your friends to the Harvest Crusade. Uh, and, of course, there's bumper stickers back there. Invite cards uh, that you can give out and hand out. But please uh, make these bookmarks out and start praying for your unsaved friends and family. And then, of course, uh, Wednesday night dinner is this week. I have no idea what they're serving. Uh, what's that? Potluck? Ah, oh, even better. Uh, so there will be uh, fried chicken, pizza, bean burritos, some strange jello thing. Uh, <laughs> Anyways, church potluck, so bring a dish and uh, uh, participate in that. And then this Wednesday night, uh, I, I found out that I'm going to be, at least if Rod uh, continued saying that this is what's going to happen, uh, Bob and I are going to be sharing about Nepal on Wednesday night, what's, what's happened, what we did, uh, who we met, and of course, Lord willing, what's going to happen going forward. So that'll be Wednesday night. So join us for the potluck, and we'll be sharing some pictures and videos about what happened in Nepal. All right. So I'd like to invite up Megan Shores, our Sunday school minister, to come on up and share with us about the Sunday school program. Hello. It's really loud. Um, I just want to share a little bit about Sunday school and some of the needs we have right now. Um, Can we hold anything? I don't know if I'm going to share that. I was kind of thinking oh, there's another really cool story. Okay, we'll share I'll both. Share we, this is our testimony time. So, so I just want to share a little bit of Sunday school and what happens in some of my favorite times in Sunday school and hopefully give you the inspiration to come help us in Sunday school because we need help. Um, so every Sunday we have a lesson that they sit in 
And we do play, we have fun, but then we also have this time where we have our lesson and we sit and learn. And after our lesson is my absolute favorite part of Sunday school. We give the kids a chance to sit down quietly and respond to the lesson. And we kind of give them a prompt of, this is your time to just talk to God and kind of work those God muscles of, what does God sound like in my life? When God speaks to me, is it this audible voice from heaven? Or are there different ways that God is talking to me and using this lesson in my life? So they have this time where the music is on, and I'm really, really give them the time that you need to find a place in the room by yourself to be alone, to sit and pray. And it's the best time ever. If you ever have a chance, come see us anytime, but come during this time because you'll get to see these kids just sitting and really trying. Today one of our kids sat and some of them are kind of being silly. Some days they're silly and some of them don't want to take it seriously. And then some days you just really see them seeking God. And today there was a little boy and he sat. And the rest of them were kind of went to, usually there's like an activity at the end and it's kind of the way they finished it. The rest of them kind of went to that fast and were writing out their prayer requests. He sat there by himself, like hands folded, just sat there and just kept going. Everyone was kind of finishing up and he just was still sitting there praying. And then at the end I see him go write his prayer request, put it up, and then he comes and he just stands in the middle of the rug and he's by himself worshiping. And I just sat there watching him and I was like trying not to cry and I was trying to get the other leaders. I'm like, look at this kid. He's in fourth grade and he's sitting in this room and he doesn't care what all of his friends are doing. He's just giving this time to the Lord to see what God is going to do in his life at that moment. And it was such a blessed time. But another one of our respond times was at the end of it, they went over to this sign and they wrote their names in it, declaring that they wanted to follow Jesus. And this happened probably, I think, one or two months ago, but I can't bring myself to throw it away because every time I look at it, I'm like, these kids declared publicly in Sunday school in front of all their friends that they wanted to follow Jesus. And I even had a kid come in the next week, and he's like, well, what is that? And I was like, well, last Sunday... At our response time, we declared that we wanted to follow Jesus. And he said, well, can I put my name in it? And it was actually Chance. And it totally blessed my heart because he wasn't there that week. But he was like, well, I want to add my name to it. And I was like, that's awesome. And then another one was they went to the cross. And they laid requests at the cross to God or prayers, what was on their heart. And one of the kids put... I am thankful for everything, good or bad, which blew me away because I'm like, what kid in elementary school is like, I'm thankful, God, for whatever you send my way. And I understand that it will be good, and I understand that it will be bad, but I am still thankful for you. Um, another one put, dear God, thank you for dying for our sins. Thanks for being there for me. And then thank you for being my Savior. And then there's a cross with hearts all around it. Mm-hmm. So I just, these kids, they want to know the Lord. They want to learn. They want to know more. And they're in there just craving it. So I would ask that you join us if you are able. Pray about joining us if you are able because we will take you. If you're not able, come to me. Let me hook you up with one of my volunteers. If you can't be in the room and ask them, what do you need me to pray for you on Sunday? And join us that way as a prayer partner. It's one of my volunteers. Either way, it'd be awesome. We need people, first service, second, six o'clock, six o'clock, we're short in the nursery. <laughs> Every week I'm scrambling before church, finding people to do the nursery. Um, pray about it. Please join us. It's, it's a blessed time. I so can't tell. in order to teach Sunday school, uh, they obviously have to have some sort of seminary background, right? Absolutely. They've, no, you do no. not. No, they don't. I set up everything. I send you the lesson. If you read through it, I will train you, and you come, and I will show you what to do. It's pretty easy if you're no. just ready. If someone wants to volunteer in Sunday school, are they automatically going to have to start teaching Sunday school? Or? Absolutely not. You can just be extra hands, and yeah. you can come watch until you're comfortable to kind of step in and say, I, I think I'm ready to lead a small group, or I'm ready to just sit with kids and show them how to sit in Sunday school because, let's be honest, just sitting in Sunday school is something we have to learn. They slowly roll all around the room. They or they take themselves and they roll themselves in the rug. Yeah. That's so. fun, too. But uh, I want to really encourage you to, if you're, if, to pray about it. 
seek the Lord, ask God, you know, you know, is this ministry you're opening up to me? Because I, it is a rich blessing being in there. The, the curriculum we're using is called uh, True, and uh, it's by David C. Cook. It's a very good curriculum, and uh, the, we pretty much go through the Bible every year, correct, in Sunday school? Yeah, it's, but it's a different cycle. emphasis. Um, and uh, one of the big things we're trying to do is help the kids understand the, the big story to see they're involved in their life in the Bible. Well, see the whole story of the Bible and also that they're a part of that story. They're a part of God's story. So we really want to encourage you, if you're available, to come be a part of Sunday school. We definitely need the more workers. Um, and uh, those of you that, you know, this Sunday school is not your thing, pray for workers, please. Uh, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. So um, they definitely could use some help. Or and even if you want to just... Say, hey, I'd love to be an alternate volunteer. If ever Sunday school people need a break, I'll step in for a Sunday. Um, that would be great, too. So anything else you want to share? I have another cool story. Tell it. Yeah. So every 6th and 13th week, we pause and remember. And basically what it is is we play a game called Zonk. And it's basically a week to sit and reflect. Well, what has God taught me these last week, six weeks? What have I seen God doing? And the kids have a chance to get up and share, and talk, and then we play this really silly game, and it's just a silly Sunday. But last Sunday, one of the questions was, how did Jesus, like, reveal himself to the disciples after the cross? And there was A, B, C, and D. Well, the answer was D. It was all of the above. But all the boys' team were like, no, it's A, no, it's B, no, it's C, D. And one of the little kids looks at them, and he's like, it's D. And they're arguing with him. He's like, this is why it has to be D. And he went through and explained why all the steps of how Jesus revealed himself were necessary to the kids. And instead of just saying it's D because I know it's D, he was like, no, this is why he first had to see the linen. And then the whole, and it was, just, I was just sitting there and I was like, wow, this kid like has more understanding than I could come up with to explain to his peers, like, you guys are wrong, <laughs> but I'm going to be graceful and explain to you like why it happened this way. So it's, and how old was he? Is it Josh Nygren? I think he's like in second grade. Second grade. Second grade. Wow. So it was really cool. Like those moments happen all the time where you just walk away and these little kids blow you away because you're like, their knowledge is deeper. And another kid last Sunday was telling us how we were talking about has God helped you overcome any struggles in your life? And he said there were these cards he really liked, but he realized that the maker of the cards, they're Pokemon cards. I know nothing about Pokemon. But in his head, he was like, the people who make Pokemon, they don't believe in God. So these cards kind of take you away from God. He's like, so I know I shouldn't have been looking at them. And God gave me the strength to not look at them anymore. And, like, he got rid of it. But I'm like, it's your Pokemon cards. But that's awesome that in his head, like, this is a battle. It's not in his head. Like, this is his reality. God has helped him overcome something that he felt God pulling him away from and saying he shouldn't look at. So... It's pretty awesome. Kids are awesome. You should join us. We have a lot of fun. So. All right. Thanks so much, Megan. And if, uh, if someone's interested in volunteering in Sunday school, uh, they can just email you at children at CCO, or calvaryot.com. Children at calvaryot.com. Call the main office or catch Megan. She's always around here all day on Sunday. So uh, we'd love to have you be a part of that. All right. Let's go ahead and open up to the scriptures today. And uh, we're going to be in Mark 12. Let me go ahead and pray, and we'll get started. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much for the work that you're doing. God, we recognize that we get to be a part of this work, the work that is yours, the work that is by you, from you, and for you. Lord, the, the wonderful work of making disciples of all the nations. We do pray now you'd bless this time in your word. Open it up to us. Help us to apply it to our lives so that, God, we may go forth from this place and honor you in everything we do. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're in Mark chapter 12. And uh, we're continuing on here. We're, we're in the third, the third day of the Passion Week. This is the last day Jesus is at the temple. And uh, we're at verse 35 this week. Uh, we'll be finishing up chapter 12. And... Um, this day, if you remember last week, we were, we were also doing some of this uh, day. Jesus, this is the last time he's teaching at the temple. 
After this, he's going to leave the temple with the disciples. We're going to get next week, we're going to start the Olivet Discourse. And what it is is uh, the disciples ask Jesus a very specific question. They say, when, when, is, when is all this stuff going to be the end? When are you coming back? Uh, and, and so Jesus gives some pro- prophetic uh, teachings about when the end will come and the teaching. We'll be getting into that next week. But this week, we're finishing up. Jesus has just been questioned by the scribes and the Pharisees and some of the, t- the, t- the teachers of the law. And we're finishing up this little section of his teaching in the temple. And we'll start in verse 35. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself and the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. Now what Mark doesn't give to us in this passage, Matthew adds. Matthew helps us understand the, the question more thoroughly or what Jesus' teaching is. Matthew says that after Jesus had answered all these questions to the scribes about his authority, uh, about uh, paying taxes to Caesar, Caesar, all these things that the scribes had tried to throw, in at, throw at Jesus to trick him, and he had finished answering their questions, he asked them a question. He asked them the question, well, who, do you, who is the Christ? Whose son is he? So he asked that question first, and then he begins to say, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? Now, Again, Christ is not the last name of Jesus. Christ, um, in the Greek, it, it's, it's the same word for Messiah in the Hebrew, which is anointed one. The anointed one of God. That's what Christ means. And so Jesus asked this very specific question about the identity of the Christ. Now, you and I might not see that much to this, but you have to understand a son in their culture, in the patriarchal culture, of the Jews would never call his, the, the father would never call his son Lord. See, it would always be the son revering the father, never the father revering the son. So when Jesus asked this question about this messianic psalm, hey, who is the Christ? Is he the son of David? David himself and the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? Jesus is helping the people sitting there to understand the messianic prophecies. The truth of the Messiah. The truth of the Christ. And that is this, this, this fact. The Christ is not just a man. He is also God. Turn with me over to Psalm chapter uh, or Psalm 110. And let's look at this psalm for one minute. Psalm 110 and uh, verse 1. And by the way, this psalm is quoted very often in the New Testament uh, regarding the identity of Christ and the identity of the Messiah, or identity of Jesus and, and tied in with the identity of the Christ and the Messiah. Verse 1. The Lord says... To my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. This is David, King David writing. And he's saying, the Lord, Yahweh, that's, what, that's the term here in the, in the Hebrew, Yahweh, or, or if you will, Yehewehe in the Hebrew, says to my Lord, Adonai, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So David's Lord is being spoken to by the Lord, saying, hey, sit down. I'll take care of this. Now, kings don't normally sit while their enemies are taken care of. Kings usually vanquish their enemies. And remember, this is what the Jews thought was going to happen. They thought Messiah was going to come into the temple and or come into Jerusalem, Hosanna in the highest. Here comes the Messiah, and he's going to march into to Pilate's palace and he's going to kick Pilate out of town. He's going to take over and he's going to establish his reign. That's what the Jews thought Jesus was going to do. And by Jesus pointing to the psalm, he's helping them understand that no, the Messiah is going to sit down. Well, God does the work of 
vanquishing his enemies, making them his footstool. Verse 2, the Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your use will be yours. The Lord has sworn, and he will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Verse 5, the Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. So this psalm helps, a psalm helps us understand too that this isn't just a son of David. This is also someone who's going to fulfill the role of priest to the Jews, to the Hebrews. A priest in the order of Melchizedek. Now you may remember Melchizedek. He was a character who shows up in the Old, in the Old Testament in the book of Genesis. And he, he kind of comes and goes. In fact, I, th- I don't think most of us would give him really that much of a second thought if he weren't showing up in the Psalms and then again in the book of Hebrews in a mighty way. In fact, in the book of Hebrews, the author helps us to understand that Jesus is in this order of Melchizedek. And who was Melchizedek? Well, after Abraham went and conquered the, the kings who had taken Lot captive and, and he had uh, waged this battle and won the war and he had all this plunder from these kings and rather than keeping the plunder, uh, as he rode back, he met with the king of Salem. The king of Salem came out to him and there the king of Salem, he gave a tenth of everything from this battle to the king of Salem. And now Salem means peace. He gave a tenth of everything he had and then the king of Salem in exchange ended up giving him bread and wine. It's an incredible image of Jesus Christ in the New Testament. But this king of Salem wasn't just a king. He was also, the book of Genesis tells us, a priest of God most high. So it was very interesting interaction there. Now, at the time of this writing, when David's writing this psalm, there's a clear distinction between those who are priests and those who are kings. Kings come from the line of David, of the tribe of Judah. Priests come from the line of Levi, Moses' brother. They're Levites, and that's where they come from. So there's a, a little birth issue here. If you have a priest coming from the line of Judah, and, and, and that's one of the areas where we see this fingerprint, this identity of Messiah. He's going to be of the tribe of Judah, a son of David, but a priest, a king and a priest. And, of course, the author of Hebrews goes into this much more detail. Now, verse 5, the Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. I um, had a fun time with this passage. Not really, because I had to get back into Hebrew. And in Hebrew, I, 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 did, I, did, not, I did not excel in Hebrew. Hebrew was probably one of the most frustrating biblical languages for me to learn. Uh, Greek, for some reason, caught on. Hebrew was tough. And now, one of the things about Hebrew that is tough is every word is uh, from a root word of three consonants. No vowels, okay? And so there's three consonants, and often these words all sound the same. Uh, so you really have to see the word to tell the difference unless you're a native speaker or you really understand it. And so uh, the word Adon can mean Lord, uh, Master, uh, a king, someone that you, uh, even a father, the master of a house, Adon. But only Adonai is used to refer to the Lord God. The sovereign Lord. They put this little ending on it that says Adonai. And it becomes, this is referring to the king of everything. The Lord God. And uh, this is it. so interesting because the Lord Yahweh said to my Lord Adonai. And then again in verse 5, the Lord Adonai is at your right hand. He's at the right hand of God. And he will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. This is a clear Messianic identity that's saying Messiah is also Yahweh. It's incredible. Now, just so you understand, when Hebrews say the Shema or the Deuteronomy 6, 5 through 8, which we quoted last week, remember? We talked about when this um, uh, scribe came up and asked, okay, Jesus, what is the most important commandment in all the law? And he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart. So when Hebrews say that, they'll never say Yahweh. They, they replace the name of Yahweh for fear of taking the Lord's name in vain. They replace it with um, Shem, the name, 
or Adonai. So Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. That's how it goes. So you use that term Adonai there. And so this is so important that Jesus, as he's drawing the people's attention, saying, hey, how is this possible that, G- that the Messiah, the Christ, is the son of David, yet David himself calls him Lord? You, you have to understand that Christ, the Christ origins have to be from before David's. Are you getting it? Do you understand? Notice what the response of the great crowd. They, they heard him gladly. Well, these scriptures demand a response from us. That's great. We can read this. We can learn all about the Hebrew and the Greek behind it. and We can learn about everything behind it. But the question is, who is this Christ to you? Do you recognize him as Lord? Or is he a part-time God in your life? Or is he no God at all in your life? You're, oh, I'm kind of interested, kind of checking it out. But I'm not really sure I'm going to be invested in it. And that is the most essential thing. And the scribes were missing it. The scribes had become their own gods. They, sure, they said they worshiped God, but they truly only worshiped themselves. The scribes continued to look to themselves, and we'll see this in this next part of the passage, verse 38. And in his teaching he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers, they will, they will receive the greater condemnation. Jesus follows up right away with <laughs> this no-nonsense teaching. He tells the, the people, blepete, watch out, beware of these scribes. Now, who were the scribes? They were the teachers of the law. They were the ones who invested their lives in studying the law of Moses, those first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. They knew the law in and out. The problem is they didn't know God. They couldn't recognize him. They couldn't recognize his provision or his grace. In fact, we could even know the Bible. We can, we can know the things about the Bible. In fact, we can even study Christianity but still not know the living God. And these scribes did not know him. And so Jesus calls them out there in the midst of the temple, on their home territory. He says, watch out for them. Beware of them. Because they love to walk around looking prominent, wearing these robes, these long robes, these garments, showing everybody how holy, how set apart they are from the everyday things. They want people to see their spirituality. They want to walk. I guess the only thing to equate this to today would be carrying around a giant Bible or a giant cross and, you know, acting very spiritual but really having no substance there at all. Just making yourself look spiritual. You know, this is what a lot of religions do. A lot of religions. I, I, I came from Nepal seeing Hinduism and, uh, you know, firsthand. It's been a while since I've seen that. And um, here in America, it, it drives me nuts because... Americans will talk about, Westerners will talk about how, how spiritual and how beautiful Hinduism is and Buddhism is and stuff. But I'll tell you right now, there's nothing beautiful about it. When someone's handicapped, they deserve to be handicapped. It's karma. It's returned to them. Don't show them compassion. In fact, don't even get involved with them because they deserve this. That's not beautiful to me. I mean, yeah, it's great that Buddha has some good teachings and teachings similar to Christ, but he's still not the truth. He still isn't the truth. If you want the truth, not a resemblance of the truth, but you want the actual truth, you've got to turn to Jesus Christ. You can't turn to the law even. It's got to be to Jesus Christ because he is the image of the Father. And if we want to know God, we've got to know Jesus Christ. There's no other way to the Father except through Jesus Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through him. Notice what these, these scribes do is they, they look for their places of prominence. They love to go into the marketplaces in their flowing robes. Hey, greet me. You know, they want everybody greeting them. Oh, look, it's scribe so-and-so. Oh, everybody, we've got a holy person here. They love it. 
look at the, they take the best seats in the synagogue, the seats of prominence. They, 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 in fact, we read um, extra biblical resources about scribes who would, if someone invited them over to their house and they didn't give them a prominent enough seat, they'd say, I'm never going to that person's house again because I wasn't put in a place of prominence. They love their prominent places. And how different, how, how, what a contrast to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus said, hey, if a man wants to follow me, he's got to lose his life. He's got to lay down his life. He's got to become nothing for the sake of the gospel. And Jesus himself, the founder of our faith, the author, the perfecter of our faith, the one who endured the cross, scorning its shame, He's the one who sat down at the right hand of God. The one who humbled himself and died on a cross, a criminal's death, is the one who ultimately has the place of prominence. And in fact, Jesus says in the book of Revelation, we see early on in the book of Revelation, that it's those who suffer martyrdom, martyrdom in, the book of Re- in the Great Tribulation, they receive long white robes. And of course, later on at the end of book Re- the book of Revelation, we are told, blessed is anyone who washes their robes in the blood of the Lamb. See, those of us who don't desire after that robe but desire after Christ, that robe will be given to us. That place of prominence is given to us for humbling ourselves, to making ourselves low. That's the way of the cross. That's the way of the kingdom of God. Not desiring your own honor or putting yourselves up in front, devouring widows' houses, what a terrible accusation that Jesus makes, and we know it's a true one. There's no, there's no uh, fight back on this one. They know what they've done. They take advantage of the widows. And uh, for pretense, make these long prayers, these long, you know, beware of long-winded prayers for show. Man, that's not the way Christianity works. Christianity is a, a, a faith and a relationship between you and God in the heart. Now, we do pray publicly, and that, that's, that's good. It's good for the church to pray corporately and publicly. But we don't go out there on the corner just praying, acting holy, so that everybody else can feel unholy. And, of course, in our culture in America, it probably wouldn't go so well. But in their culture, it was what lifted people up. And we, Christians don't want to be that. We don't want to look for the better place. We want to look for the lower place, the place of service. If you want to be great in the kingdom of God, you've got to become the servant of all. That's, that's the only way to become great. So notice what, as they try to make themselves great, Jesus doesn't let up. They will receive the greater condemnation. Last thing to remember from this is God does remember. He doesn't forget. And God will judge. And every one of those scribes at the judgment will be judged. People will be judged. And, and the only way to, there's only one way to avoid that judgment and that's having the right answer on who is the Christ. Who is this Messiah? If he's Savior, if he's Lord of my life, that's how we avoid the judgment. But, it, but if it's, well, you know, he's a good guy. He's a good teacher. But I don't want him dying for my sins. I want to pay the price for my sins. You're not going to be able to avoid the judgment. Because it's only through Jesus Christ that we can avoid the judgment. Let's move on to verse 41. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly, I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in Everything she had, all she had to live on. Live on. Now, Josephus, the Jewish historian, tells us about these trumpet-like boxes. They had this metal trumpet kind of cone, bronze cone, brass cone. And then uh, there were different boxes for different things. Now, this is Passover time. So many, many Jews are coming to Jerusalem. They're coming into the temple. They're giving their sacrifices. They're bringing in their offerings. And one of these boxes is what you call a free will offering. And it's just like, I just love God, so I want to give some of what I have. And so they would have these boxes. And when you put in your coins, it would 
it would, oh, I don't have a bunch of coins. But anyway, it would ding and everybody would know, oh, hey, that, was, that guy's a rich guy. You know, he's, he's really given to the Lord. But then this little widow brought up her little two mites that equal a penny. This is, this is a widow's mite from the first century right here. Maybe some of you can't even see it. I don't know if you can see it or not. But this little mite just dropped in. These little two mites. Barely even making a sound, I'm sure, amidst everything else. It was, um, and in fact, I bet you even it was uh, after hearing all this coin dropping in and, and everything like that, you hear this two little dot, it's like, oh, that's it? <laughs> it's like, that was funny. You know, definitely wasn't impressive to, to the scribes and the Pharisees, those going around looking to look really spiritual and holy. Wasn't much to them, but notice how did not, wasn't lost on the Son of God. In fact, Jesus sees it and he uses the opportunity to teach about what a costly gift this is from this poor widow. And uh, it's interesting what the Greek says here in this passage. The Greek, Jesus says, this widow, the poor one. This widow, the poor one. Recognizing her poverty, says, She's given more than all these people because she's given out of what she doesn't have. She's given out of a grateful heart to God. She's given in faith to the Lord. Not based on, oh, I want to look good in front of everybody, dropping a bunch of money in the, in the, the pot there. No. And I also think it's amazing that Jesus, his entry into the temple started with the condemnation of the money changers and those selling. He was turning over the tables. Yet his teaching in the temple ends with his uh, recognizing this little poor widow's worship. His exhortation to be, the, uh, to, to be like the one who sacrifices it all for the kingdom of God. What a wonderful message that Jesus gives. And, and I, you know, we haven't had much time to talk about giving yet because the text just hasn't come up to it. But I do want to spend a few moments and talk about giving tithes and offerings. You know, this is always a, a question for people. Um, and they want to come up to pastors and say, how much should I give? And we say, we give answers, well, it's between you and the Lord. But how much should I give? You know, well, maybe if I, you think I should start here, 1%, it's between you and the Lord. And, and especially when you're young and you're trying to figure this out, maybe you don't totally understand it, but truly it is your giving is between you and the Lord. It's from your heart. So you have to decide what you're going to give to the Lord. And it has to be a gift in faith. But there's lots of instruction from the scriptures about giving and about how we should give. And, uh, of course, first of all, here in this story, we see the poor widow contributing in her poverty. She, she's not contributing out of her abundance She's contributing from what she's lacking. So there's the first thing about get rule of giving is we give out of our faith. Now, again, it's not blind faith. We don't give on credit. We're not running up credit card debts to, to give. No, we, we give in faith. We recognize, all right, Lord, you've provided. I want to give back. So that's the first rule. It's, it's got to be in faith. It's, it's not about always what, it, what, okay, well, you know, if I do this, well, there's just nothing left to give this month, so we'll, next month. Well, again, is that acting out in faith or is that, is that just you looking which, by what you see? Remember, we live by faith, not by sight. And again, I don't want to recommend we go into debt or anything like that, credit card debt or in giving. That's not what you're to do either. That's not responsible. Turn with me over to 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse, or chapter 9. Paul goes into this in further detail. Paul is taking up an offering for the church in, in Jerusalem. And he's encouraging the Corinthians to have their offering ready when he gets there. That way, that way it's not going to be some exaction. He's not going to put them on the spot for the money and whatnot. But if they have it ready, that means that they've, they've prayerfully considered what they're going to give and they've thought about it, and they're ready to give, and they're going to do it cheerfully. And this is what Paul says in regards to our money. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one 
must give as he has decided in his heart. Not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. This passage is so wonderful for us because when it comes to money, we want to hold on to it and like, okay, well, I got this bill, this bill, this bill. Definitely got to have the, the cable. That's important. Or, you know, maybe some of you guys aren't dealing with luxuries, but you're just saying, I'm trying to figure out how to put gas in the car this week. And again, this is, a, this is a step in faith that you have to take when it comes to giving to God. And by the way, I'm not telling you give to this church or this ministry. I'm just talking about giving. Whether you give somewhere else or you give to, to, uh, to other organiza- Christian organizations, that's between you and the Lord. Uh, in fact, just so you know, the pastors at this church, we don't have any access to giving records. So we don't get to see who gives what. That's, there's only a couple people in the church that actually have that access. They're, they're on the financial team. But our, us pastors, that's not what we see. Okay? We don't keep track of people by giving. Um, because we don't want to make decisions based on who's giving what. We want to make decisions by the way the Lord's leading us to make decisions. So this is totally between you and the Lord, your giving. But, but Paul does tell us that, one, it should be from a cheerful heart. It, it shouldn't be under compulsion. It shouldn't be like grieve, grudgingly giving to the Lord. No, it should be like, Lord, I love you. Here it is. And you know, this widow, this widow fully knew the cost of her two little mites. She knew that this, these two little mites was going to amount to a little bit of flour, which would amount to a meal that day. The widow fully knew what the cost of her giving was going to be, yet she gladly gave it to the Lord, trusting in Him. It's an act of faith. Every time you put offering in, or however you do it, it's, it's a saying, Lord, I trust you. I trust you for your provision, and I'm thankful for it. Paul also says this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap, reap bountifully. Now, there are some teachers out there today that will teach, teach that, hey, if you want God to give you money and wealth and all that sort of stuff, open up the pocketbook, start throwing it in. No, I'm not going to teach that. <laughs> How we reap comes in many different forms in the kingdom of God. Okay. It doesn't just come in monetary versions. Of course, obviously, there's reaping reward in, in the next life, in eternity, with the Lord. There's reaping reward as far as the benefits of knowing that I'm a part of the work of the Lord in this place, or I'm doing this. I'm, I'm, I'm a part of the Harvest Crusade. I'm a part of these missions. I'm a part of Calvary Chapel Old Town and what they're doing. I'm, I'm excited to be a part of those ministries and give towards those things. Um, and so... The way we reap can be very, uh, very different ways. So don't think that, okay, God, I'm going to give to you so you'll give back to me more. That's not what we're to do. <laughs> we give because we want to give back to the Lord. Now, God doesn't need it. Just understand that. <laughs> These te- televangelists that get on TV and they're like, okay, oh, man, in order for the work of the Lord to be done, we need this from you. We need this money from you. Well, that's a very poor God, I'll tell you right now. My God is not poor. He's, he's the owner of a sheep on a thousand hills. My God can provide. And I told you last week about how when we were in Nepal, we needed tarps. God gave us 200. <laughs> Here you go. <laughs> wow, that's awesome. God, you just provided 200 tarps. You know, and, and, and uh, God can provide. He's not poor. He's not needy. In fact, you're only giving back to God what he's already given to you. Think about the blessing there. And this is what Paul says when he says, And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. What Paul is saying is, guess what? God has blessed you so that you, he's given this to you to allow you to be a part of his work. God has provided, it's kind of like when my kids go to Sunday school and we give them some money for the offering. They didn't work for it. Or earn it. I gave it to them so that they get to be blessed by giving it in the offering. 
They get to be blessed. By, oh, I've got my offering. You know, that's, that's the whole idea here that God gives to us so that we get to be a part of his good work. It's an incredible idea when we think about giving that way. Giving is not a have to, but a get to. Like I said last week, loving the Lord your God is not a have to, but a get to. Giving offering, giving of our tithes, it's an exercise in faith. And by the way, every time we exercise that wonderful muscle of faith, it will get bigger and stronger. I'll tell you right now. Uh, I, I, uh, I like weightlifting, but I don't do it near as much as I should. But I definitely like when, when I'm weightlifting uh, frequently and, you know, you just like, it's amazing when I think about how the body, you can break down muscle and then it builds back up stronger. And it's incredible. And it's cool being strong. You know, it's cool. Like when, when I was in um, uh, Nepal, it was cool being like the, these two Nepali teenagers were like barely hanging, trying to get these tarps up. And then I just grabbed it and like threw it up there. And they were just like, whoa, you know. I'm not that strong of a guy. But, but it's cool. I love that. We can, we can build up that muscle to be stronger, to accomplish more things. But more so than that, when we exercise that muscle of faith, it only grows in us. And we quit relying upon ourselves and relying upon God. And that is an a, um, exercise in our, our, in our country that's a very hard exercise for us to do. We're too afraid to do it. We're too afraid to say, all right, Lord, I'm stepping out. I'm trusting in you because I don't understand what's going to come out of this. Um, I love short-term missions for that very reason, too. When I would do short-term missions with the youth group, They'd say, oh, I'd like to go on the mission trip, but I can't afford the money to do it. I'm like, oh, okay. So you don't really want to go. No, I really want to go. Well, have you asked the Lord yet? No. But, but we can't afford it. My parents said we can't afford it. Oh, okay, well, that's where your parents are at. But, you know, maybe have your parents call me. And I challenge the parents, you know, are you willing to let your kid learn what it means to rely upon God? If God provides, he's definitely guiding there. If God guides, he'll provide. But why would you say, no, we can't afford this, or this is impossible, before you've even sought the Lord and trusted in him? You know, we've had people sit, come and start praying about it and say, you know what? I think that God, God shut the door for this. I don't think we're, we're supposed to go on this trip. Okay, that's great. Other people, no, I'm praying. I have no idea where God's going to provide the money from, but I'm trusting in him. And you know what? God has always provided Every time I see someone step out in faith, God always provides. So giving is just another exercise that we get to do to be a part of the work of God. And this little widow, giving her of her two little mites, Jesus recognizes it. And it is important to him. That's one of the key things to look at is no matter what you give to God, it is very important to God. Even when you give an offering to the man on the street, it is important to God. You know, some of you, you know, may want to give money to somebody, you know, you just feel that compassion for them on the street. You know, oh, I'd like to buy them a meal, but, but I don't know if they're going to go buy alcohol with it and, or drugs or whatever the case is. But listen, whatever you give to the Lord, God honors that. And it's important to him. Even if it's just a little bit. So, in the New Testament, what does it say about tithing? Well, first of all, tithing isn't in the New Testament as far as a 10%. Giving is in the New Testament, but there's nothing in the New Testament about 10%. Okay, that's in the Old Testament. It's in the law, and it is important to give to God. But in the New Testament, we see something totally different. We see in the book of Acts the believers giving above and beyond the 10%. Just giving, coming together and giving in faith to the Lord. So... As far as your giving goes and tithing goes, the key thing is that it's in faith and it's from a cheerful heart, not under compulsion. And, and it's something that you're not giving grudgingly, but you're excited to give to the Lord and saying, Lord, use this. I, uh, last, a couple summers ago, uh, let's see, it was, yeah, two summers, no, it was last summer. <laughs> my years meshed together. But we, uh, my family and I went to Missouri to visit my sister, and uh, we were riding along the Missouri River. And the Missouri River is so wide. It's, if you've never seen it, it's, it's just this huge river. And, it, it, you know, it spans 2,300 miles. But, but the Missouri wi- River is just like, I mean, it's huge. 
And I, I was thinking about, as we were riding our bikes down this bike trail, I was thinking about, man, it would be kind of fun to kayak and go all around it and stuff. But, you know, the Missouri River was the one that 200 years ago, Thomas Jefferson commissioned Meriwether Lewis and William Clark to find the source of the Missouri River. You see, they thought that that would become the Northwest, Northwest Passage, that maybe the Missouri River, because it was so wide uh, and it flowed into the Mississippi, that maybe it would connect to the Pacific coast. So they commissioned this, this um, excursion, expedition, and they did succeed in mapping the Northwest. And 15 months after pushing themselves upstream, they found the headwaters of the mighty Missouri River near the Montana-Idaho border. A tiny little, little stream, a little rivulet. Which, which a member of the expedition, Private Hugh McNeil, straddled. And when he straddled that little stream, he said, thanking God that he had lived to put one foot on either side of the mighty and hitherto deemed endless Missouri. At its source, the Missouri looks a lot different from the powerful current flow that you see where it joins up with the Mississippi. It's so small, just, oh, I can straddle this. It, it's insignificant. But man, what, what, how it grows and what it becomes is this mighty, mighty river. And I'll tell you, your, this little widow's, poor widow's offering Although it seemed insignificant to everyone there, it's very significant to God. And God does amazing things with the insignificant. That's what he's in the business of doing. Corinthians, Paul tells us that, that he chose the humble things of the world to bring down the lofty. He chose the weak things of this world to bring down the strong. That's how you know it's a work of God. He chooses the people that are like, I've got no ability to do this. How am I going to do this? But Lord, you're calling. Here I go. Stepping out into faith. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much for your word. Jesus, please help us to be faithful to your teachings. Help us to step out in faith, however you're challenging us in faith, whether it's giving of our money or our time. Whatever you're challenging us to do, maybe it's even a call to a mission field or a pastorate. Lord, we just pray that we would be faithful to you. We would honor you. Lord, we keep our eyes fixed upon you and the goal of this life. Lord, help us to be faithful in making disciples of all the nations. We just thank you so much, Jesus. And we pray this in your name. Amen.